Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. By far the best way to live. That's in Christ's name, amen. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. Last week we saw David extend kindness to Mephibosheth. But this morning we will now go from a kind gesture to a cold shoulder. Look at verse 1 with me. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David was sent by the hand of his servant to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city to spy it out and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Once again, David wanted to show kindness. But this time, his attempts led to war instead of peace. His overtures to his neighbors were completely misunderstood. And David had to defend his own honor, as well as the honor of the Lord and of the Lord's people. Now, these ambassadors that David would have sent would have been some of the most distinguished men in all of the nation. No doubt, David knew these men well, and so this is the stature of the delegation that he is sending to them. So David sends a delegation of court officials to Hanun, but immaturity and ignorance is going to triumph over wisdom and common sense. The inexperienced new king listened to his suspicious advisors and treated David's men as though they were spies. They chose to interpret David's kindness as duplicitous. They displayed an attitude that poisons all too many relationships that we have today. Distrust prevents us from seeing the good intentions of someone else for what they are. And let's be honest, we are all prone somewhat to suspicion. Now sometimes, of course, suspicion is justified. But when it makes us incapable of seeing the goodness of someone else's words, actions, or intentions, then much harm can be caused. Here, this common human failing of distrust was still more serious still because they were despising the kindness and goodness of God's king. So they accused David of sending these men out as sort of, as sort of a group that would kind of spy out the land for a full-scale invasion. The problem is they are completely wrong. They are judging David's motives, and they are judging David's heart. 
and they couldn't be any farther off the mark as to the truth of the matter. It's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we are not to judge. That's one scripture that almost every non-Christian has memorized, even though it's taken entirely out of context. Because 15 verses later, in that same chapter, Jesus also tells us to beware of false prophets. Well, how do I do that? I have to judge both their actions and their doctrine. So the Bible actually commands us to judge, but to do it in a way that's free from any kind of hypocrisy. Because there is a judgment that we as Christians are free to judge. We are free as Christians to judge another person's actions. And then from those actions, we are free to draw conclusions about the life that they are living. How does the Bible say we judge a tree? You know, it's by its fruits. What does that mean? We have to make a judgment on that tree. So done in the right way, the Bible does call us as Christians to judge people. But what is forbidden by Jesus is that we are forbidden to judge a person's motives behind any particular action. Because that's something that we cannot know. Only God knows a person's motives. I don't know what your success rate has been when you violated Jesus' commandment not to judge someone else's motives. But if you are anything like me, you can look at a particular situation and read mountains of additional info into that. If I'm not careful, I can read mountains into a situation, into a sentence, or even into a gesture which has absolutely no basis in reality at all. And personally, I can be true critical of others. And if I don't continually try to walk in the Spirit, I can have the tendency to find faults in someone's motives even when none exist. So sermons today may be more for me than for you because I don't want to be like that as someone who lives in a glass house. Because from my experience, I have been wrong far more times than I have ever been right when it comes to judging someone else's motives. This is a great example from scripture of what can happen if we violate God's commandment concerning judging the motives of somebody else. Because by the time this false judgment runs its course, several thousand people are going to lose their lives. Why? Because a group of people completely misread the motives of someone else. Another great truth in this section is how careful we must be as to who it is that we allow to counsel us in life. It is of vital importance who we allow to influence us and who we surround ourselves with in this life. Why? Because if we surround ourselves with people who are ultra-critical and negative, it will not be long until we begin to act that exact same way. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Translation, if you don't think the people that you are hanging around with doesn't influence you, you are simply kidding yourselves. Now, this not only concerns people, but also the things that we read, the things that we listen to, and the things that we watch on television. Wise would be the man, and prudent would be the woman, who consistently runs all type of media 
through the grid of Scripture, and then allow it to judge ourselves, and then ask ourselves this question, does this produce in me the fruit of the Spirit, or does this arouse my sinful flesh? But if verse 3 was bad, verse 4 is even worse. The young Ammonite king accepted the cynicism of his military chiefs. Instead of welcoming the bearers of King David's kindness, instead they abused them. Listen how they treated David's ambassadors. First, they cut off half of their beard. Now, this doesn't mean that they gave them a trim. It means they shaved off one side and left the other side, making them look ridiculous and drawing attention to their disgrace. I asked Paul Crockett to shave off half of his beard this morning as an illustration, but he refused. I tell you, man, some people have no commitment. I'm kidding. I didn't ask him that. But according to the Torah and Jewish tradition, the beard was a symbol of masculinity. Thus, this was an act, to them especially, of incredible humiliation. You know, really, it's kind of hard for us to feel the full impact of this. Because in the Jewish culture, a beard was something that only a man could grow. So to them, it was a symbol of a person's manhood. And so by cutting it half off, it was to make them basically half a man. It would be like forcibly shaving a woman's head today in our culture. A man's beard represented his dignity, and to shave it expressed sorrow and mourning, but to have it forcibly shaved by another was deeply humiliating. And if that wasn't bad enough, they now cut their garments off in the middle, exposing their buttocks. I feel like Forrest Gump for some reason. <laughs> this is the one drawback of going verse by verse. I have to say the word buttocks. But anyway, all Jews were to be dressed modestly, so exposing the men's body was deeply embarrassing. It was treating them like they would treat prisoners of war. And also, it meant removing some of the tassels off of their garments that identified them as being Jewish. But then, the worst part was, they sent them away through the city so the whole city could watch them. But what they should have remembered was that an ambassador does not only represent themselves, they also represent the one who sent them. And they're going to find out that making King David mad was a very bad idea. We can picture the servants of David slowly making their way back home, no doubt seeking to avoid the derision and mockery of those who saw them. But when David finds out in verse 5 what has occurred, he sends someone to tell them to just stay in Jericho until your beards grow back. Now, the members of the delegation could have easily secured other garments, but it would have taken time for their beards to grow. So they just stayed in Jericho until they looked presentable. David says, so just hang out there until your beards grow back. And by the way, there's a great truth in that for all of us. The rebukes and the reproofs that we all may get in life, the hurtful situations that we all have to endure, all have one thing in common. They are not eternal. No matter how embarrassed or ashamed we may be, our metaphorical beards will one day grow back. Look at verse 6. 
And the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab, and Maacah were by themselves in the land. What the people of Ammon do here is they compound their sin. Listen, on those occasions that we do fall into any kind of sinful behavior and commit a wrongdoing against another person, there is a very simple way to deal with that. Now, it will require humility, which is an affront to our pride, which is a good thing. So what we have to do is when we sin against somebody, what the Bible tells us to do is we go to that person, confess our sin to them, and then, then do whatever it takes to restore that relationship again. But what the people of Ammon do, and it's not uncommon even among God's people, is they refuse to admit that they are wrong. And instead, they choose to escalate the situation. How do they do that? Or they draw in other people who have no business getting involved in this fight and taking sides. You know where I'm going with this, right? I wonder how many church splits God has watched from all around the world with this very thing at the core. Someone has done wrong to another, and instead of making it right, they begin to marshal others in the church to their way of thinking. And the next thing you know, you have a Calvary Chapel Princeton and a Calvary Chapel Bluefield because the church is split. In his letter to Romans, the Apostle Paul poses the following question. Do you presume on or despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now the kindness of God has a purpose, which is to lead us to turn to him in repentance. Because this is a very serious matter. Paul goes on to explain to those who show contempt for God's kindness what they are really doing. Listen to the next verse of that chapter. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed we see that it did not even occur to the Ammonites to throw themselves on the kindness of King David and to seek his pardon. In their case, the kindness and patience of the king did not lead to repentance. The only course of action considered by them was to strengthen themselves against him. Now to show you the restraint of David, even when the ambassadors returned, he did not immediately declare war upon Ammon. It was not until David saw them hiring mercenary armies that his military had to assemble for war. But King Hanun wasn't prepared for war, especially against a seasoned general like Joab and a distinguished king like King David. And we can read in 1 Chronicles 19, verse 6, it tells us that they paid a thousand talents of silver to hire troops from the north, including Syrians, Arameans, and these are all nations that David will eventually defeat. But these 33,000 soldiers joined with the Ammonite army in attacking the Jewish army. Why? 
because of the bad counsel of a couple people judging wrongly someone else's motives. Look at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So David divides his troops into two companies. Joab led one contingency, and Abishai, his brother, the other. Now, Joab is going to have his faults, as we will see as we make our way through this book. But he was an astute tactician. He chose some of Israel's best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. Now, the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he had them arrayed against the Ammonites. Thus, Joab would have a, a contingent of crack troops of the south, where he could conduct the mercenary or confront the mercenaries in the open country, while his brother Abishai would lead the rest of the army against the Ammonites at Rehoboth. Now I love verse 11. He says, "We have our work cut out for us. If I can get victory over these Syrians before me, you come over and help me. But if you get in trouble fighting the men of Ammon, then I will come over and help you." And then we'll just trust in the Lord and see what he does. Now, Joab's plan was a good one, and it remains so today. The battle that we face is great. Now, others in the Christian community might have a different flavor in their fellowship or their denomination. But the fact is, we need every brother and sister that we have. Because Joab and Abishai are two very different individuals, but they stand together as one here. Let me remind us this morning, if you don't get anything else, we truly do need each other in this Christian walk. We may be fighting on different fronts, but it's the same enemy. And so we need to be ready to assist one another when that time arises. Verse 12, please. Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near or yeah, drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Joab's word to Abishai stand at the heart of this chapter. He makes the only direct reference to God in the entire chapter. And what he says illuminates the whole episode. The words are a wonderful expression of faith in God. Now faith is knowing that the Lord is good and that he always does what is good. But what is good is decided by God and not us. By this faith we can face any enemy, any situation, and any strength that comes from this faith. As we walk honestly before God, doing what he approves, he will give us strength that surpasses whatever power confronts us. So Joab says, let's be strong and fight, and may the Lord do whatever is good in his sight. Now did you catch that? There is a balance there between the responsibility of man 
and the sovereignty of God. This is still a hot debate in theological circles. Some insist that everything is about God's sovereignty, while others argue that man also has a responsibility. But here we have an interesting combination of be courageous and fight hard, and then leave the results up to the Lord. So we have human responsibility and divine sovereignty merged into one verse. So while it is true that God ordains the ends, God also ordains the means to the ends. What was the end? Well, it was to be victory. What was the means to that end? Be a good soldier and use strategy. Sort of a praise the Lord and pass the ammunition thing, if you remember that from a few years ago. Verse 16, Then Hadadezer sent and brought out all the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of the Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told, he gathered all, told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. This aggressive initiative comes from Hadadezer's forces. They were, however, decisively defeated by the fighters under King David's command. But this time, blood was shed, and it was a lot of blood. Now, verse 18 may suggest that David himself inflicted the fatal wound on Shobak, although it may equally mean that this was done by those under the David's command. But in all that, the sad thing is, it could have been so very different. It did not have to come to this. If only the Ammonites would have welcomed King David's kindness. If only they had, even after they had done wrong, if they had sought his pardon for the, their abuse of his kindness while there was still time to do so. You know, we all need to be warned this morning. God's kindness toward us, which we experience every day, is meant to lead us to repentance. Let us see that our response to King Jesus is not like those foolish Ammonites. Let us receive our kind and patient king with thankfulness and with joy. As we close, as messengers of the kings of kings, we are to prepare for the best and expect the worst. That is, I'm to say to people, I've got great news for you. God loves you. He's forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. Yet even though we are sharing the absolute best, people like Hanun will sometimes cut us and sometimes expose us. We should expect this. Paul told Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. Or how about this from the lips of Christ himself? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were sent before you. Our king, the son of David, has commissioned all Christians in here as servants to be communicators of kindness and messengers of mercy. I think it's also important to see from last week that Mephibosheth received David's kindness, and yet Hanun didn't. 
But think about it. Mephibosheth was poor, broken, lame, and weak, while Hanun was rich, proud, self-centered, and arrogant. That tells me that as a servant of the king, I understand that those who are poor in spirit and meek, that those who mourn after their own sin will receive the kind word I bring about the kindness of the king. But there will also be those like Hanun who will not receive the kind word that we bring. Therefore, if you want to be fruitful in ministry, hang out with the people who are lame, the Mephibosheth of the world. Spend your time with people who are weak, broken, and needy. David sent his servants to both Mephibosheth and Hanun. We are to exclude no one. We are to realize that the most fruit will be found not with the beautiful people of this world, but those who are crippled by sin and they fully realize they can't save themselves. So we close the chapter with David riding high on a huge military victory and love kingdom-wide as their leader. What could possibly go wrong? Your homework is to read chapter 12 to find out. And Father, I know just in preparing this message how you have smote my heart time and time again about my own tendency, Lord, to judge people's motives, to think I understand everything about a situation. And time and time again, I've been proven to be wrong about that. Well, we want to be messengers of mercy. We want to be diligent. We want to be, Father, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Help us to walk by your spirit. Help us to know what to do, Lord. And like it says in Isaiah, hearing a voice behind us to the right or to the left, this is the way walk in it. Help us to walk in that way. We ask in your name. Amen.